Hey weirdos, it's Darren and uh, I'm going to have a little fun here and do a broadcast from Visually Odd Con in DeKalb, Illinois. I didn't think I'd actually be able to do this earlier because the equipment that I brought with me isn't working, but I downloaded an app so I can at least record this and upload it. I may not be able to do the show live, or like streaming live, but it'll be pretty close to live. So, And if you hear me interrupted and talking to people, well, that's because we are here at the Visually Odd Con in DeKalb, Illinois. And uh, we'll be here until 7 p.m. tonight, and then again from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. tomorrow. So if you're hearing this and you happen to be somewhere in the Chicagoland area or maybe near the, uh, the state line area of Illinois and Wisconsin, then come on out. We'd love to see you. Uh, of course, I've got all of the free stuff that I've been talking about the last month or so. I've got the free tote bags here. I've got buttons, stickers, magnets, pens. I've got some brand new keychains that I just ordered that are fidget keychains. So they have the, the buttons and, and uh, gadgets there that you can just play with just because you're bored. But uh, they also have a flashlight on them as well. So they actually have a safety feature if you're walking around in the dark. And well, if you listen to this podcast, you know how things can get when it gets dark. So I wasn't going to uh, do an actual podcast, but while I was sorting through all of my stuff and setting up the table, I found the script that I used two years ago for this same, <laughs> for the, well, not uh, an event very similar to this. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go ahead and use that script. So uh, you probably haven't heard it. And so I thought I'd enjoy it, uh, bring it to you. So welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. And like I mentioned, I am here, so I'm going to sound a bit different. I'm at uh, in DeKalb, Illinois, at the Red Roof Inn for the virtual for the visually odd con. Did I say virtually? I meant visually. Visually odd con. And uh, while I'm here, I've got all that free stuff that I'm giving away. If you want to find out more about this event, I do have more information on the events calendar at WeirdDarkness.com. So, coming up in the next few minutes or hour or however long this takes, if you're a horror movie buff in any way, shape, or form, you've likely heard the story that a man working on the set of The Exorcist was later discovered to also be a mass murderer. But is that story true? Or is there more fiction to it than we have been led to believe? The exorcist serial killer will have that story. A large number of children suddenly disappear in the town of Hamelin, Germany, and we're familiar with the fairy tale, but it turns out it really did happen. The Pied Piper did abduct over a hundred children on June 26, 1284. So we'll talk about that. Giles Corey and his wife Martha they were already outsiders in the family village of Salem, Massachusetts, when they were accused of witchcraft. They subsequently faced a torturous fate, particularly Giles. He was slowly crushed to death. And centuries ago, it's believed that magicians and cultists were able to communicate with real angels. Well, since then, the special language used seems to have been lost, but two men believe they have received direct knowledge about this special language. Is it possible to verbally dialogue with angels? We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, 
and come with me into the weird darkness. On September 14, 1977, the body of Addison Verrill, a film reporter for Variety, was found in his Greenwich Village apartment in New York. Initially, police believed that he'd been killed because of a robbery that went wrong. But as a reporter from the Village Voice named Arthur Bell reported, the TV, tape recorder, typewriter, stuff that a small-time crook could easily dispose of had not been taken. It was not a break-in crime. Verrill had brought his assailant home or allowed him into the apartment. Well, at that time, Greenwich Village was experiencing a string of murders of gay men. A number of bodies of unidentified victims had been found in the Hudson River. They had been dismembered, placed in bags. Had Verrill been a victim of that same killer? Had he been interrupted before his body could be cut up and disposed of? Well, then on the September 22nd, reporter Arthur Bell got a call from an, from an unidentified person who claimed that he had killed Addison Verrill. That call would begin a string of events that created a legend that still surrounds one of the most terrifying films of all time, The Exorcist. The events connected to the call started more than five years earlier. In 1972, when Dr. Barton Lane was performing a procedure called an angiogram in the New York University Radiology Lab in Manhattan. At that time, an angiogram, a diagnostic test that takes x-ray pictures of blood vessels, was performed with a needle stuck into the patient's artery. When the needle would hit the artery, a jet of blood would shoot out. Usually, this was all in a day's work for Dr. Lane. But that day was different. He had a visitor in the lab who was scouting locations and looking for extras for a movie that he was working on. When the visitor, director William Friedkin, saw the impressive spray of blood that resulted from the test, he knew he wanted it featured in his next film, an adaptation of the book The Exorcist. The filming of The Exorcist has long been considered cursed. During production, a series of tragedies occurred with the cast and crew. But there's another story connected to the film that concerns the radiology technician in the film, Paul Bateson, who is often referred to fans of the film, and even Fried and, uh, Friedkin himself, as a serial killer. Now, it's true that Bateson might have killed someone. He was convicted and served time for murder, after all. But whether he was a serial killer actually remains unknown. You'll have to decide that for yourself. After Friedkin witnessed the angiogram, he told Dr. Lane that he wanted to recreate it for his film. He also wanted everybody in the room to appear in the movie. This included Dr. Lane, a nurse named Nancy, and Paul Bateson, a well-liked and talented radiology technician. In early 1973, Friedkin and his crew returned to the hospital and blocked off the radiology department for two weekends to shoot the scene. Anyone who has seen the film will remember this sequence as being one of the most uncomfortable in the entire movie. Hi there, how you doing? It's okay. It's okay. Doing? I'm doing great. How about you? Awesome, awesome. I'm taking a break, folks, because I got somebody here to talk to. <laughs> so, I'm Darren, by the way. Melissa. Melissa, nice, nice to, meet to meet you. How about you, sir? Caleb. Caleb. All right, Melissa and Caleb. Yeah. Well, do you guys listen to podcasts at all? I do a couple, but not, yeah. for, not very often, just sometimes. Okay. Well, you're you being you're being recorded right now, so you want to lie about that now? No, no? Way. okay, okay. That's cool beans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I listen to your show all the time. 
Um, well, I'm a, I'm the host of Weird Darkness, and I do stories of the of the paranormal and supernatural, true crime, uh, unexplained mysteries, cryptids like Bigfoot and stuff like that. Oh, that's cool. Um, UFOs. So anything weird, stuff. dark, strange, macabre yeah. ends up in the show, and I do the show seven days a week. That's awesome. So, uh, He's always loved scary movies and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. He shares Stephen King's birthday, so I think. No way. Yeah, I think that's why, you know. Very cool. <laughs> So yeah. how do you celebrate your birthday then? Do you uh, do you dress in black and wear fangs or something like that, like Halloween? No, or just a normal birthday. birthday. What an opportunity! You're you're wasting it, man. I've always gone it. all out on Halloween though, haven't I? I always dress. Oh up. yeah. <laughs> I was born the day after Halloween, and so I've always had that stuff like around the house around my birthday anyway. Right, Because right. no, who takes down Halloween on Halloween? Right. So on my, I wake up on, on my birthday and it's still Halloween. So yeah. that's where I got my start. So you and I are similar. You've got Stephen King's birthday and I've got the Day of the Dead, essentially, because that's what they what they call it in in, uh, in Mexico. So well, if you want to give it a listen, I would love for you to, to, uh, to give it a try. For sure. Um, there's business cards on both sides. you got a Magnus right there in the center. But... Everything's free. You got the stickers, you got uh, buttons, uh, cool. the pens are here. Uh, these are the, the fidget, key, uh, fidget keychains. The okay. buttons and, and stuff don't do anything, they're just fun to play with. Uh -huh. But there is a switch on the side for you to, if you need light oh, going cool. out to your car or something. Awesome. So there's a safety feature there, that which cool. since we all know what, what happens in the dark, it's probably a good idea to have something like that. Right? <laughs> and a bag? So, yeah. Yeah the, yeah, the tote bags are also free. Oh, yeah, sweet. it looks like you, you've uh, you got yeah. one at the front, so, but I you can take it. I might subscribe to you because there is a couple others that I subscribe to that are creepy and, and, and kooky. I would and love, it. And stuff. I love all it. All I ask is you give it a, just give it one try at least. Sure, yeah. I can do that. And if you like it, send me an email or something. Let me know. It's like, hey, For I sure. saw you at the con. For sure. All right. Thank you. You're very welcome. You All right. Day. You have a great afternoon. All right, gang. We're back. See, so we can expect that to happen quite often during the, uh, during the broadcast, even though it is lunchtime here. So this is the reason that we're doing it. Hello over there across the room. <laughs> And my uh, drink of choice is, uh, what are we drinking today? We're drinking cherry Coca-Cola, which is not something that I probably should be drinking, but don't tell my doctor. Okay, moving on. So I'll go back to the beginning of this paragraph. In early 1973, Friedkin and his crew returned to the hospital and blocked off the radiology department for two weekends to shoot the scene. Anyone who has seen the film will remember this sequence as being one of the most uncomfortable in the entire movie. It involves Reagan, played by Lyndall Blair, of course, being brought in for brain testing by her mother, Chris McNeil, played by Ellen Burstyn. Reagan is wheeled into an operating room where Bateson assists in conducting an angiogram. He has a couple of lines in the scene, telling young Reagan what he'd actually told a number of patients throughout his career. As he moved Reagan onto the table, Bateson said, Reagan, can you sit up and scoot over here? A little more. Good. The nurse then straps Reagan down and Bateson pushes a button that slowly puts her into position. Reagan, I'm just going to move you down on the table, okay? Just, just for a short time, he says. And then Bateson walks around to her front, lowers the top of her gown, and begins to attach wires to her shoulders. Very sticky, he jokes with her. The scene that follows is one of the most disturbing in the movie, likely because it is so realistic. But when you know the story behind the seemingly friendly technician, though, 
it becomes even more disturbing. Jump ahead nearly five years to the telephone call received by Arthur Bell. The unnamed caller told the reporter that he and Verrill had met at Badlands, a gay bar on Christopher Street. Together, the two drank and did a mixture of drugs, including marijuana, cocaine, and amyl nitrate until about 3 a.m., when they left to continue partying at another bar called the Mineshaft. They left at 5 a.m. and went to Verrill's apartment, where they drank, had sex, and did more drugs until 7.30 a.m. Then he told Bell that he got upset because he thought that Verrill had not been reciprocal enough to his intentions, and he snapped. I took a heavy frying pan from the kitchen and knocked Addison out, he said. Then I went into a drawer on the right side of the kitchen, removed the knife, and stuck it into Addison's chest. During the call, a number of key details about the crime slipped out. Then at one point, he said, I'd like to atone, but I don't want to give myself up. I wouldn't be able to practice again. I'll, I'd lose my license. When Bell got off the phone, he contacted the police, and detectives confirmed that the caller had known details that only the murderer would, including that he stole Verrill's MasterCard and that an unidentified white substance on the floor had been Crisco. Bell was given police protection that night and was told to wait for another call. His phone rang at 11.30 p.m. It was a different caller, but this one said that he knew who had killed Addison Verrill and that it was Paul Bateson who had done it. Detectives went straight to Bateson's apartment and found him drunk on the couch. He said that he knew why they had come and pointed to a copy of the Village Voice on the floor. Bell's first story about Verrill was on the front page. Bateson became agitated when the police took him into custody. He was taken to headquarters where he was given coffee, cigarettes, and something to eat. After that, he was ready to talk. He'd already confessed to Arthur Bell, and now he told the same story to the police. He wrote a three-page confession, and as far as the police were concerned, the murder was solved. Unfortunately, things did not go as smoothly as they planned. At the preliminary hearing, Bateson claimed that his confession was given when he was drunk and the police had not read him his rights. He now said that he was not the man who called Bell and his story was simply based on what he'd read in the newspaper. He was innocent. But the judge didn't agree. He ruled the police had upheld his constitutional rights throughout his arrest and the confession was allowed to be used in court. The trial did not go in Bateson's favor. With his confession being used against him, prosecutors also tried to connect Bateson to the murders of six other men who had been killed and dismembered in Greenwich Village between 1975 and 1977. Prosecutor William Hoyt said that Bateson had bragged to a friend, Richard Ryan, that he had killed other men. He told Mr. Ryan that killing is easy, that getting rid of the bodies, that's the hard part. He said that he could cut up his victims and put the parts in plastic garbage bags to, to uh, dispose of them. And he wasn't finished. I would also point out that the court, to the court that the police have evidence, though there is no direct proof connecting them to the defendant, that there were six bodies, torsos of which were found floating in the Hudson River, wrapped up in plastic garbage bags, Hoyt continued. In all six cases, examiners have said that the person who cut up the bodies was a person who was either a butcher or a person with medical knowledge because of the way the cuts were done. <coughs> Let me get a drink here. Wow. Scratchy throat.
Right. So Hoyt told said that all the, in all six cases, examiners said the person who cut up the bodies was a person who was either a butcher or a person with medical knowledge because of the way the cuts were done. Bateson maintained his innocence throughout the trial and was convinced that he would be found not guilty. He wasn't. The jury returned a guilty verdict, and Bateson spoke on his own behalf during sentencing. I still contend that I am not guilty of the crimes and I am not the person described by Mr. Hoyt at all. I feel a great loss for Mr. Verrill, and I am not at all the type of person as he has described me. The judge decided that the six other murderers, excuse me, the judge decided that the six other murders were not relevant to the case or to the Bateson's sentencing. He sent him to prison for a minimum of 20 years. Everyone who knew Bateson was shocked by this turn of events. He was an experienced and well-liked technician and had a lot of friends. In time, as the story of the murders and conviction was told and retold, and then mixed with the other murders that prosecutors suspected him of, his story took another turn. Largely, his reputation in the notoriety of The Exorcist has to do with anecdotes told by William Friedkin. In the late 70s, the news of Bateson's conviction reached the director, but he rarely discussed the technician by name. However, he did tell his story in an interview in The Hollywood Reporter. He was a really nice young guy, he said. I remember he wore a leather-studded bracelet, and he had an earring, which in 1972 was not common in the workplace. Then, about four or five years later, after the film, I see the front page of the New York Post and the Daily News, and he's accused of five or six murders. And there were murders in the S&M bars on the west side of Manhattan. His lawyer's name was in the story, and I called his lawyer and told him who I was and asked him, can I visit with Paul? His lawyer said okay. He was at Rikers Island. I went through about eight layers of bureaucracy, and I get into his cell, and where there's a guy inside, and I'm sitting with him in the cell. He was very cheerful. He said, I remember killing this one guy. I cut him up, and I put his body parts in a plastic bag and threw in the East River. Well, this is how they got him. At the bottom of the bag, in very small print that you can't even read, it said, Property of NYU Medical Center, Neuro <coughs> Neuropsychiatric Center. He said, that's the only one I remember, but they want me to confess to another five or six. And I said, what are you going to do? He said, well, I'm thinking it over because if I confess to six or seven of these, they'll lower the sentence. According to Friedkin, this conversation with Bateson helped inspire his next film, Cruising, starring Al Pacino as a police officer going undercover in New York City to solve the slayings of gay men in the 1970s. Strangely, though, there are no records indicating that police investigated Bateson's involvement with these six other murders. There is also nothing in the reports or the court case that mentions finding NYU body bags that connected the police to Paul Bateson. Verrill's body was found in his apartment, not dismembered in the Hudson River. There was also no information about any kind of deal about Bateson's sentence either. So. Was this information that Bateson told Friedkin true and never reported? Did Friedkin, did, uh, Friedkin remember it wrong? Or has he added mythology to the film that never really existed? No one knows. Writer Matt Miller attempted to contact both Friedkin and Paul Bateson, who was released from prison in 2003, but received no response to his queries. The lore of The Exorcist states that there was a serial killer named Paul Bateson, responsible for six murders in the 1970s, who appeared in the film. 
turns out that the legend, as we know it, is incorrect. Paul Bateson went to prison for the murder of one man. The other murders are still unsolved. That means that the man who murdered and dismembered at least six men has never been caught. That might be even scarier than a little girl who's possessed by a demon. If you're listening to the podcast and it sounds a little bit different today, well, it's because I'm broadcasting from the Visually Odd Con in DeKalb, Illinois. We'll be here until 7 p.m. tonight. This is Saturday. And then tomorrow, Sunday, we'll be here from 11 a.m. till 7 p.m. Lots of really cool stuff to see out here. Uh, lots of artists um, with different, different wares. We've got uh, people that, that make stuff out of real bones. We've got guy. We've, I uh, met a guy uh, down the hall from me here who, who uh, he he uh, what's, what, what am I, what, he I guess he does he, he he works with bugs, and he he frames them in in ways that so uh, so that they can be uh, they they can be kept and <laughs> not go bad. My mind is not working today. Neither is my tongue. But anyway. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff here, and I'm hoping to make my way around myself here in a little bit. It was a little too busy earlier, so I haven't had an opportunity to see everything. But uh, there, everybody that I've met so far is just so cool. And I've actually had a couple of people who have stopped by and said that they listened to the podcast, that they actually heard about the Visually Odd Con through the podcast, which is really great to hear. So again, if you'd like to come out, we're in DeKalb, Illinois, which is outside Chicago. And we're going to be here until 7 p.m. tonight, 11 a.m. till 7 p.m. tomorrow. That's Sunday, and uh, I might might record again tomorrow. I'm not really sure. If I can find some find a story or something, I might uh, might decide to do this again tomorrow. But all of that being said, I'd love for you to come out and at least say hi to me and uh, grab some of the free stuff that I'm giving away. I've got tote bags and buttons and stickers and pens and keychains and all that other fun stuff. Okay, let me take another sip and then we'll move on to the next story. <coughs> It's starting to get a little bit noisy in here too, which means that more people are starting to come in, which is great. So I might have to pause in between these stories. Okay, this next one. 130 children kidnapped. The truth behind the Pied Piper of Hamlin. On the evening of June 26th, 1284, a large number of children in the town of Hamelin, Saxon, Germany, disappeared. Although this is often seen as a fairy tale, it was in fact a real historical event. While it's been embellished, it had multiple elements added and cleaned up so as to not frighten children, the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin is not a myth. There are enough independent records contemporary to the time to establish that something did occur in 1284. The town record records in 1384, it has been 100 years since our children left. There are also multiple accounts of a stained glass window in the church. I'm, I'm unsure if this is St. Boniface Min uh, Minster or the or the Mark Church. I'm not really sure, but apparently around 1300 is when the when the uh, the glass window was made. The church is said to have undergone extensive renovations after a fire in 1660 with the glasswork disappearing, but it's recorded in many accounts and a re reconstruction does exist today. There's also an inscription of the Pied Piper House, among other sources. The Lundberg manuscript, dated to 1440, doesn't mention rats. 
However, they are present in the 1553 Chronicle by Hans Zeitlos and most later accounts, including Browning and, of course, Grimm. Most of us have heard of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. The Pied playing, uh, the, the pipe playing, Pied playing. Try, try playing a pie. That, that would, now, that would be an interesting story. Uh, sorry. The Pipe playing rat catcher from the popular fairy tale who took away the town's children as an act of revenge when not paid his dues. Ever wondered whether there's some history behind that? The Pied Piper of Hamelin, originally called The Children of Hamelin, is a tale from the book Children's and Household Tales, German, Kinder, uh, uh, Kinder und Homsgren. You know what? I'm not even going to try to pronounce the German name of it. We'll just call it Children's. We'll just call it Children's and Household Tales. It was written in 1812 by the Grimm brothers, Jacob and Wilhelm. The collection of German fairy tales is commonly known in English as, of course, Grimm's fairy tales. The tales were not originally meant for children, though. They were the documentation of centuries-old German folklores, uh, Germanic folklores, that had till then been spread orally. The fascinating tales revealed much about the Germanic culture and traditions. As such, they were not the kind of happily ever after stories you might expect, but at times pretty dark. As many stories carried magical elements and carried morals, they became popular among children and were toned down to suit the younger audience. Bits and pieces of bizarre historical events do peek out from the original fairy tales, and the one on the Pied Piper is no different. The tale shows the importance of good governance and cautions us against dishonest dealings. The Pied Piper of Hamelin plays out in the Germanic town of Hamelin, now called Hamel, uh, Hamelin, Hamelin, I guess, Hamelin, H-A-M-E-L-N. I'm not exactly sure how you would pronounce that. I'm just going to call it Hamelin. Anyway, um, it takes place in Hamelin back in 1284. The town had been suffering from a severe rat infestation when a man uh, arrived carrying a musical pipe and wearing pied, that is, multicolored clothing. He promised the mayor to rid the town of its rats in exchange for a fee. The music he played on his pipe attracted all the town's rats toward him, after which he led the entranced animals to the Wesser River nearby, where they all dove in and drowned. The mayor refused to pay the piper afterward, though, and he went away planning revenge. On June 26th, the day of St. John and also of St. Paul, the piper returned, dressed as a hunter and wearing a red hat. He was playing a different tune this time. This time, all the town's children followed him hypnotized. The piper led them to a mountain cave, and the children were never heard from again. The story notes that the mayor's grown-up daughter was among the children who were lost. The Grimm story notes that to commemorate the horrific incident, the townspeople put the following inscription on the town hall. In the year 1284, after the birth of Christ, from Hamlin were led away 130 children born at this place, led away by a piper into a mountain. The story also notes that in the year 1572, the mayor had the story portrayed in the church windows. The accompanying inscription has become largely illegible. In addition, a coin was minted in memory of the event. The inscription put up by the people on a stained glass church window in the town read, On the day of John and Paul, 130 children in Hamlin went to Calvary, 
and were brought through all kinds of danger to the Coppin Mountain and lost. Though the stained glass window depicted a group of children along with a motley clad fellow, the inscription says nothing about a piper. The window seems to have been destroyed by now, though through accounts of it, uh, excuse me, though accounts of it do still remain. Moreover, according to the story, a gate was built in the town 272 years after the magician led the 130 children from the city, on which was inscribed, Sumptum ter denos cum magus ab ur puelos dexerat ante años CCLXXII condita portafrut. The footnote included in later editions of the original Grimm's fairy tales said, inscription in gold letters on a house in Hamlin in the year 1284 on the day of John and Paul, the 26th of June, a piper wearing clothes of many colors abducted 130 children born in Hamlin and lost at Calvary on the Copen. The house this footnote speaks of is now known as the Pied Piper House. It's called so because of the inscription on the side, and not because the piper lived here. This inscription is similar to the one put on the church window, but this one does mention the existence of the piper. The stone facade of the house dates to around 1602, but the house itself is said to be older. Heinrich of Hereford, a monk who wrote about this incident in the in the uh, Lundberg manuscript more than a century after the widow had been constructed, the window had been constructed, and he speaks about a man of, of around 30 who came to the town playing a flute and led away its children. Scholars and researchers believe that something tragic must have happened in the town of Hamlin for the story to have emerged at all. A common theory is that the children of the town suffered from some sort of epidemic. It's been suggested by historians that maybe the mass grave for the children had been denoted as their site of disappearance. Since rat infestations were a common story back in the 13th century, the children might have been inflicted with the bubonic plague or even an early strain of the Black Death. The pied clothing of the piper could be an indication of the splotchy skin lesions accompanying the disease. The most supported theory, post-historical and epidemiological, and epidemiological arguments was presented in favor of murine typhus as the predominant Hamlin epidemic. Yet another theory says that the dancing children were exhibiting symptoms of Huntington's disease, which impairs walking, gait, and causes involuntary jerking movements. So why weren't the adults infected? Well, this might, explain, might be explained by the theory that says that the incident took place a few decades earlier and the children actually went on an ill-fated children's crusade. Europeans would participate in crusades at the time, following one child with a vision from God to go to the said Holy Land and win it for Christendom. In a colonization theory, it's said the children went into the cave and came out on the other side in Transylvania. That is, they went east to form a colony of their own. Jack David Zipes, a fairy tale scholar, supports this theory with documents showing that someone had come to Hamlin at that time to take in new recruits to colonize parts of Eastern Europe. William Manchester, in his book, A World Lit Only by Fire, theorized that the Piper was a pedophile and murderer who snatched up the children, killed and scattered their mutilated bodies. All right, time for another sip. All right. Before I move on, if I'm sounding strange, uh, I've already told you a couple of times, but just in case you missed it, I'm actually recording this 
at the Visually Odd Con in DeKalb, Illinois. And I'll be here until 7 p.m. tonight. Tonight being Saturday the, what is today, the 23rd. Saturday the 23rd. And I will be here again tomorrow on Sunday the 24th from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. You definitely want to come out and see all of the artwork that people have done. There are some great, uh, great uh, graphic artists here. There are people who construct things out of different materials like bone. Some people, as I mentioned earlier, uh, collect bugs and, and actually uh, frame them, uh, display them. In fact, it's kind of interesting. I was talking to the guy that has that has the bugs over there, and he, he also has a bat uh, that he's that he's uh, that he's framed. And I was looking at that bat, going, "That looks really cool." And I started telling him about this skeleton of a bat that I have at home, and uh, he said, "Yeah, I've done those before." And <laughs> well, it turns out he did the one that's in my house, but I did I didn't know it when I was talking to him. Because uh, I was I was supposed to be here back in November for another con, and my migraines kept me from coming out. But my bride came out and brought out some tote bags that I promised would um, I would supply just to make things easier for the for the con. And while she was here, she looked around and saw the bat skeleton and just loved it. She just knew that I would love it, and so she bought it. And we've actually had people come to the house since then and comment on how cool it is. Ironically, the guy who sprays to kill bugs came to, <laughs> came to our house and said how much he loved the skeleton. Little did he know that it was actually made by a guy who specializes in dead bugs and framing them. Uh, that was just, uh, it was pretty funny. So anyway, there's this really cool bat here that's framed and it's, uh, it's only $85. And so I'm thinking, if that thing is not sold by the end of tomorrow night, I'm taking it because it, it is really cool. But I do hope somebody comes and, and buys it, though, because he's got so much really cool stuff over there. But we also got horror authors that are here. We've got uh, we got uh, jewelry, uh, like gothic style jewelry that's that's here. Um, let's see. What, what else? I'm trying to look around and see what else. Um, little trinkets. There's a, there's an amazing... Uh, artist here that I think I'm going to have maybe even have work on a couple of Weird Darkness publishing books. I think that'll be really cool. She might be able to do the covers of a couple of our books because she's just that good. But anyway, a lot of really cool stuff to see. Uh, you can learn more about the Visually Odd Con if you go to weirddarkness.com slash events. I actually have a link there uh, that'll take you to all, all that you need to know. But I'd love to see, see you come out here. We're in DeKalb, Illinois. It's outside Chicago. It's about halfway between Chicago and Wisconsin. Uh, right, in, right in there. So Chicago land, if you, if you will. So I'd love to, love to see you come out with a. I still got tons of free stuff here. Um, they just took, they just took my second big giant box of, of tote bags, uh, but that means I still have three giant boxes left in the car. I've still got more than enough for the weekend. Uh, plus, I've got buttons and stickers and magnets and pens and those keychains that I've been telling people about. And uh, I would, I'd, love, I'd like to see you. I'd love for you to come out and just to say hi. I'd say, hey, you know what? I heard about you on the Visually Odd Con. Would love, just wanted to come and say hi. I would love to see you. All right, so moving on. Let me get another sip here for my Cherry Coke real quick. Okay, let's look at The Curse of Giles Corey. Giles Corey was a prosperous farmer with a bit of a dark past. An uptight and proud man, 
He had a few times escaped the punishments of the leaders of Salem, Massachusetts. His relationship with the community was strained, and the people of Salem might have wanted revenge. Thus, the Salem witch trials became the perfect cover for getting away with his and his wife's murder. Um, rather than fight for his honor in a court, which he felt he had already, the court had already damned him, I can understand why he would say that, uh, he decided that he would rather fight for his honor in a different way. This proud Corey stood quiet on trial as a witch, a decision which led to a torturous sentence of being crushed to death. Indeed, the cursed fate of Giles Corey also shows that men, not just women, suffered at the Salem witch trials. Giles Corey, a well-to-do farmer, well farmer, hailed from Northampton, England when he was born in 1621. Sometime after his first marriage to a woman named Margaret, Corey made the three-month journey to America. He settled in Salem Town for a while, where the couple had a daughter. Her name was Deliverance, and she was delivered on August 5, 1658. In 1659, a small family moved to Salem Village to become farmers. On the outskirts of town, Giles Corey became a prosperous farmer. Farming was important back then, not only for a source of food for individuals, but also for storing crops during harsh winters. As such, Corey became an important figure in the community. Shortly after becoming a farmer, however, Margaret died. Corey married again to Mary Bright in 1664, and the two settled in a peaceful farming community, church-going life for the next 12 years. In one fateful event forever changed the fortunes of the Corys. One day in 1675, Corey discovered that his farmhand, Jacob Goodall, had stolen apples from his storage area. Incensed, the farmer pummeled his farmhand to death with a stick. Corey maintained that his worker fell and broke his arm. Authorities disagreed. Fellow well-to-do farmer in the town, John Proctor, testified in court that he had overheard Corey confess to having beaten Goodall to death. The testimony was enough to convict the farmer, but instead of jail time for his church-going integral man in the community, town leaders agreed to a fine instead to make amends for Goodall's death. But some town leaders disagreed with this assessment and loathed the notion that Corey had just bought his way out of imprisonment. It didn't help that Corey had twice before this instance been accused and tried for theft. His prodigal past, without punishment, riled the establishment of Salem as members of the community began to become ever more suspicious of Corey, and to think him a man prone to violence who took the law into his own hands. This would be the farmer's undoing in 1692 at the height of the witch trial hysteria. Before the Salem witch trials, the town and village divided itself into two main factions. The Putnam faction, led by the affluent and well-respected Putnam family, supported, uh, excuse me, uh, the Putnam faction, led by the affluent and well-respected Putnam family, supported traditional agricultural activities, and the village minister, Samuel Paris. The Porter faction, led by the Porter family, touted a more mercantile and industrious way of life in Salem town. The Porters were more forward-thinking and more liberal. They also wanted closer associations with Salem Village and strongly opposed the Minister Paris. By some accounts, it's believed that this, this divisive hatred festering between these two factions led directly to the Salem Witch Trials in 1692. 
Unfortunately for Giles Corey, the suspect farmer aligned himself with the less conventional Porter faction. When he escaped conviction for his murder in 1676, the Putnam faction was convinced, was convinced that he had bribed his way to freedom. Indeed, the vengeful Putnams would come calling on Corey soon enough. Corey's second wife died in 1684, and six years later, he married yet a third time, this one this time to Martha Pannon. She was a widow as well, and so the coupling the uh, coupling worked was, uh, was amicable as Martha helped to keep Corey on the straight and narrow. Despite his murder conviction in 1676, Martha and Giles Corey became full members of the church in 1691. Church records read that, quote, Giles Corey, a man of 80 years of age, having been a scandalous person in his former time, and God having in his later time awakened him into, unto repentance, he stood propounded he stood propounded a month, making a confession of such evils as he had been observed in him before, as had been observed. See, this is why I like editing things before posting them, because it is so hard to do this live without any mistakes. So anyway, uh, and God, having in his later time awakened him unto repentance, he stood propounded a month, making confession of such evils as had been observed in him before. He was received into the church with consent of the brethren. Unquote. It seemed the church-going section of the community, at least, was ready to believe that in his old age and with his new wife, Corey was a changed man and could live out his final days in peace. Indeed, even when John Proctor's house burned down and he accused Corey, little was done to follow up on that claim. But in February and March of 1692, the pre-trial examinations of the Salem witches began. Martha and Giles Corey were among the first community members um, to observe the examinations, and Martha, an intelligent and experienced woman, immediately began to doubt the validity of all the accusations. She and Giles attended enough examinations of others for her to realize that some members of the Putnams in their paranoia and vengeance would seek to discredit Giles based on his previous convictions. As such, Martha hid her husband's riding saddle so he could not attend any more pre-trials. Of course, persuading her husband not to attend the trials suggested to many in Salem that Martha was engaged in witchcraft. Even though her precaution did make sense, the uh, the that Martha was excuse me that the Putnam's fat. Sorry, even though her precaution made sense. The Putnam's faction hysteria looked for any excuse to accuse innocent people. It didn't help that Martha had something of a checkered sexual past with an illegitimate son to prove it. Some of the girls of the Putnam faction began mimicking Martha's movements and gestures. This led them to say the elderly lady was bewitching them and controlling them, and Martha was officially accused of witchcraft and arrested on March 21, 1692. Scholars speculate that the real reason the girls of Salem Village accused Martha of witchcraft was because she changed Giles. Rather than being a violent murderer, Martha convinced her husband to become a God-fearing member of the church for the first time in his life. The farmer himself testified against his wife. He was caught up in the hysteria too, but he may not have wanted to get into trouble. Sorry. I had something pop up on my phone. Okay. 
The farmer himself testified against his wife. He was caught up in the hysteria as well, but he may not have wanted to get into trouble with the Putnam faction. He said that his cat and ox suddenly fell ill, that he had seen his wife knelt silently by fire as if in prayer, and that it was Martha's witchcraft to blame. Less than a month later, Martha's husband joined her in jail as an accused. Ann Putnam Jr., Martin Mercy Lewis, Abigail Williams, Mary Walcott, and Elizabeth Hubbard, all members of the Putnam faction and all young girls, accused Giles Corey of witchcraft. Giles Corey's, uh, Giles Corey's trial began on April 19, 1692. Reverend Samuel Paris kept the official written records of the trials. Judge Jonathan Corwin accused Corey of perjury and ordered Corey's hands to be tied behind his back to prevent him from practicing witchcraft in court. As if putting on a well-rehearsed play, the Putnams may have been taught to mimic Corey's movements. From the official written records, quote, All the afflicted were seized now with fits and troubled with pinches. Then the court ordered his hands to be tied. Magistrate, what, is it not enough to act witchcraft at other times, but must you do it now in the face of authority? Corey, I'm a poor creature and cannot help it. Upon the motion of his head again, they had their heads and necks afflicted. Magistrate, why do you tell such wicked lies against witnesses that heard you speak after this manner this very morning? Corey, I never saw anything but a black dog. <coughs> At his own pretrial examination, the judge tried to bring up Corey's accusations against Martha regarding the cat and the ox. Corey refused to bring up that testimony, instead standing mute." Unquote. Thomas Gould testified that Corey said that he knew enough against his wife to do her business, and the court wanted to know just what that meant. But Corey maintained his innocence, pled guilty, and refused to answer any questions regarding his prior testimony against his wife. Indeed, Corey so refused to speak during his trial that the trial never came to an end. He would not be convicted because Corey would later be killed while being tortured by Sheriff Corwin that coming September. Corey and his wife languished in prison for months, awaiting a full trial in September. By the time the court got around to the Corys, a dozen witnesses prepared to testify against him. Corey had enough of this absurdity. He knew his fate was sealed. No matter what he said, so no matter uh, he knew his fate was sealed no matter what he said, so he continued to say nothing. He deeded his farming land to his two son, sons-in-law, and then he put on a brave face for what came next. Corey pleaded not guilty to witchcraft in September 1692, but he refused to stand trial. He knew the judge would rule against him anyway because of the witnesses. Corey's only goal was to prevent the state from taking his land. That way, his sons-in-law would at least be left alone to prosper. The penalty for standing mute was torture. A judge ordered pianforte et tour, a method of torture by which heavier and heavier stones are stacked upon the chest of the accused until they either plea or die. In other words, being crushed to death by stones. Corey would never plead guilty. He knew death was his only option now. Authorities stripped Corey naked and forced him to lay down on the ground. A board was placed on top of him, but then gradually, large stone weights were added to the board. This happened over the course of two to three days. 
When the stones started to crush Corey's body, he cried, more weight, more weight. He wanted the death to come quickly. Spectators were either horrified or entranced by this horrific way to die. Robert Cowliffe, who witnessed Corey's torture, said that Corey's tongue was being pressed out of his mouth. The sheriff, with his cane, forced it in again when he was dying. In other words, the man inflicting this torture amusedly poked Corey's tongue back into his mouth. Corey's death, though painful, was not in vain. Let me get a sip here real quick. <clears throat> Corey's death, though, painful, was not in vain. His two sons-in-law inherited his land, and after Corey's execution, the people of Salem began to doubt the usefulness of a witch hunt. The gory death led historians to label Corey a martyr. His refusal to plead guilty, according to historians, gave back fortitude and courage rather than spite and bewilderment. The couple of Salem, the people of Salem, would eventually come to their senses, but not before they could hang Corey's wife Martha to death on September 22, 1692. Men included in the death toll were John Proctor, the man who testified against Corey at his murder trial, George Burroughs, John Willard, and George Jacobs Sr. Despite the name witch in the Salem witch trials, men were just as susceptible to the paranoia spawned by the Putnam-Porter feud. Modern lore claims Corey's spirit is not at rest. All right, I actually had to stop had to stop the recording there for a second and get a drink, and I actually ended up talking with somebody who was really cool, somebody from uh, Red was it Red Five, the Star Wars folks. Uh, we might actually might actually be talking about them on the podcast here in the near future. I told her I'd be more than happy to let people know about what they're doing if she drops me an email. All right, so anyway, the people of Salem, they would eventually come to their senses, but not before they could hang Corey's wife Martha to death on September 22, 1692. Men included, I already went through all of that. Okay, modern lore it claims that Corey's spirit is not at rest. Witnesses say that his ghostly apparition haunts Howard Street Cemetery in present-day Salem at night. Legend has it that the white ghost appears right before something bad happens. In 1914, Corey's ghost appeared right before the Great Salem Fire. In 1978, he materialized before local sheriff Robert Cahill suffered a rare blood disorder heart attack and stroke in that same year. Cahill stated that the two previous sheriffs died of blood disorders or heart-related ailments while he was in office. It was the sheriff of Salem who tortured Corey to death. Cahill believes the curse was broken in 1991, though, when the sheriff's office moved to Middleton instead of Salem. Perhaps then the spirit of Giles Corey can finally rest after 300 years. Okay, I think I have one more story left. The language of angels? Yep, okay, one more. Uh, before I get to that, though, again, I'd like to encourage you to come out and uh, visit us here at the Visually Odd Con in DeKalb, Illinois. I'll be here until 7 p.m. tonight, and then also 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. tomorrow, Sunday, April 24th. And uh, we'll be out here with all the free stuff that I've been talking about, my 
magnets and buttons and pens and keychains and stickers and all that other stuff, free tote bags. But there's also just so much other really cool stuff here that you want to check out. Uh, you can find out a little bit more about the Visually Odd Con if you go to WeirdDarkness.com and they click on uh, Events Calendar. It'll actually uh, have a little bit more information there that you can le learn more. All right, so moving on to our very last story for today, it's the language of the angels. Enochian is a mysterious language that 16th century occultists John Dee and Edward Kelly recorded in their private journals. They claimed that celestial speech allowed magicians and occultists to communicate with angelic realms. In the year 1581, occultists John Dee and Edward Kelly claimed to have received communications from angels who provided them with the foundations of a language which, uh, excuse me, foundations of a language with which to communicate with the other side. This angelic language contained its own alphabet, grammar, syntax, and they wrote all of this down in journals. The new language was called Enochian, and it comes from John Dee's assertion that the biblical patriarch Enoch had been the last human to know the language. Dr. John Dee, who lived from 1527 to 1609, was an occultist, a mathematician, astronomer, and astrologer who lived in Mortlake, West London for most of his life. An educated man who studied at St. John's College in Cambridge, he was eventually accepted into influential circles of the ruling elite and acted as scientific advisor and confidant to Queen Elizabeth I. He's associated with coining the phrase British Empire. During the early part of his life, Dee had, well, really little interest in the supernatural. Later on, he became disillusioned with science and he began experimenting with magic and the occult. Dee was looking to discover lost spiritual knowledge and recover the wisdom that he believed was hidden in books of antiquity. Among those books was the then fabled book of Enoch, which he conceived as being a book describing the magic system used by the patriarch in the Bible. The term Enochian comes from the biblical figure of Enoch, who was a source of hidden mystical knowledge, and he was taken up to heaven, taken up to heaven without dying. According to Genesis 5.24, he walked with God, and Hebrews 11.5 states that he was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. From 1581 to 1585, Dee began performing a long series of magical events. In 1581, at the age of 54, Dee wrote in his, personal, in his personal journal that God had sent good angels to communicate directly with mankind. By 1582, he was collaborating with fellow occultist and seer Edward Kelly to communicate with these angels. Hundreds of spirit conversions were recorded. Excuse me. Hundreds of spirit conversations were recorded, including what they claimed was an angelic language called Enochian composed of non-English letters. The Enochian alphabet was revealed to Dr. John Dee and Edward Kelly during scrying sessions when various texts and tables were received from angels. Scrying is a technique used by seers, uh, psychics, and sorcerers to foretell the future and involves gazing into a reflective surface to receive messages. It's documented that Dee and Kelly used certain objects, such as a black obsidian mirror and a crystal ball, to experience these visions. Dee acted as orator, directing prayers to God and the archangels for 15 minutes to an hour. Then a scrying stone was placed on the table and the angels were called to manifest themselves. Dee and Kelly would watch the stone and record everything that they saw and heard. 
They were told by the angels that the magic would give superhuman powers to its practitioners, change the political structure of Europe, and herald the coming of the apocalypse. Dee believed that he was doing uh, what he was doing would be would be of benefit to posterity, and documented the information into a series of manuscripts and workbooks. He never described the language using uh, used during the sessions as Enochian. He preferred to call it angelical, the celestial speech, or the first language of God Christ. He also liked using the term Adamical, as in Adam, because he asserted that it was used by Adam in the Garden of Eden to name all of God's creatures. There are two different versions of the Enochian alphabet, with one script slightly different from the other. The first version is found in Dee's manuscript, the first five books of the mysteries, and the second and generally more accepted version is the Liber Logaith, the latter being Kelly's original drawings. The script is written from right to left and might include accents. The Enochian letters have English letter equivalents, but some of the letter names pronounced as they would be in English, many pronounced differently. The alphabet is used in the practice of Enochian magic on angelical or Enochian keys. They were received through Edward Kelly in 1584 in Krakow, Poland. That year, he wrote in his diaries a series of 19 magical incantations. The keys comprise 48 poetic verses and correspond to various functions within the Enochian magic system. They're given in the original Enochian language and a modern English translation based on John Dee's Old English versions. Due to the loss of parts of John Dee's original manuscripts, interpretations have arisen regarding the meaning, validity, and authenticity behind the Enochian language. Some magicians have asserted it is the oldest language in the world, predating all other human languages. In some circles, it's considered amongst the most powerful strains of magic and is a method of, cont of uh, contacting intelligences from other dimensions. Detractors have pointed that the syntax of Enochian bears a strong resemblance to English, Dee and Kelly's natural language. The such similarities include the word Lucifetias, a term meaning brightness, which bears a connection to Lucifer, whose name means light bringer. Lundo, the Enochian word for kingdom, might just represent Dee's connection to his royal patron, the Queen of England. Computer analysis has also shown Enochian to have a grammatical relationship to English. Texts in the Liber Logoth demonstrate phonetic features that do not appear in natural languages. The phonetic features are associated more with glossolalia, or speaking in tongues. Modern-day occultists have found it difficult to reconstruct the Enochian systems, although progress has been made by studying the original manuscripts found in Sir Hans, uh, in, uh, Sir Hans Sloan's collection. And from these studies, various groups and authors have created a functional system of magic. The Enochian language was picked up and popularized by occultists, such as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Alistair Crowley, Israel Rigardi, and Anton LaVey, founder of the Church of Satan. Many Satanists have even included Enochian keys in their rituals, some adopting the entire language for use. The Enochian language was also studied by U.S. rocket scientist Jack Parson of the OTO. In 1994, the Enochian letters were used as glyphs to operate the arc angle in the film Stargate, one year before the U.S. remote viewing program Stargate was made public. Another aspect of modern Enochian magic is Enochian chess, 
It's both a game and a divination tool, derived from the original tablets of John Dee. It's a complex system that requires a strong foundation in the study of the Kabbalah, geomancy, tarot, alchemy, and astrology. Many of the original items used by Dee and Kelly can be found in the British Museum in London, England. And that's my last story, folks. So again, I'd love to see you come out here to uh, the Visually Odd Con. Uh, again, we'll be here until 7 p.m. tonight, Saturday. And then uh, Sunday, we'll be here from 11 a.m. until 7 p.m. And I still have tons of free stuff that I'm giving away to anybody who shows up. Uh, the Visually Odd Con is in DeKalb, Illinois. It's uh, a suburb of Chicago. And you can find all the details about it by going to WeirdDarkness.com slash events. That's WeirdDarkness.com slash events. Or just go to WeirdDarkness.com and click on the events calendar, and it'll take you to that page. So thanks a lot for joining me. I uh, really hope that this works. Um, I'm recording this than having to upload it, and I hope it actually works. So I guess we'll find out. God bless you, weirdos, and uh, we'll see you later.